podcast brought to you by the Center for Regenerative Orthopedics at Georgia Bone and Joint. I am your host, Dr. Trevor Turner, RMSK. You can check us out online at georgiaboneandjoint.org or follow us on Facebook or YouTube for more information. Otherwise, let's go ahead and dive in into our topic for today, which is what is a stem cell? Now, the reason that we feel compelled to talk about this is because many people are going out on the internet and they're reading things from different sources and they're saying stem cells are the Wild West. We've got clinics all over the United States who are opening and they're offering promises for various cures, whether it is neuropathy or Lou Gehrig's disease or whether it's cosmetic or wound healing or facial types of procedures. And this is really not what we're talking about. We're talking about a field we call orthobiologics, and that's the name of this podcast because really orthobiologics is the use of cell-based orthopedics which apply to injuries of bone, of muscle, of cartilage, of tendon, of ligament, and that's the context in which we are discussing stem cells here. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce multiple definitions, and then we'll talk about the ones that we actually use in clinical practice. So loosely defined, a stem cell is an undeveloped biological cell which is capable of proliferation, of self-renewal, of conversion to differentiated cells and regenerating tissue. So what does that really mean? Well, let's break that down. So an undeveloped cell means one that is very early on in its life cycle, maybe some of the earliest on cells that we have. And when we say proliferation, it means a cell that can multiply into more. Now, self-renewal is unique. So only stem cells can do this. That process means that a cell can divide in such a way that it is asymmetric, meaning it can renew itself as well as give off another cell. And that's what initially sparked a lot of the scientific optimism about the promise of stem cells for people. Now, when we talk about the conversion into differentiated cells. This is a lot of what people were excited about in the beginning. So they were excited about the fact that we could take a cell that was relatively early on and we could make it turn into bone or turn into fat or turn into cartilage or turn into tendon or ligament or something that we would ideally need to regrow to help a human being who had an injury or had a disease. And so the earliest ideas about why stem cells were going to work is that they could regenerate tissue, almost like a lizard that loses its tail and then regrows a new one after it's torn off. So there are multiple kinds of stem cells, and probably the first one that sparked so much controversy is called the embryonic cell. And embryonic cells are totipotent. But what does that mean when we say that? It means an embryonic cell can turn into anything. So not just one kind of tissue, but all kinds of cell types and tissue. And this has become extremely controversial, not only because of how they're obtained, which is how we get an embryonic cell. So we might have to use a embryo or a, you know an egg that was fertilized, and there were a lot of ethical concerns about whether or not that was a violation of human rights or human dignity. And you saw a lot of legislation passed one way or the other that was initially put into restriction by the Bush administration and then uh, later altered by the Obama administration. But regardless, this, uh, this embryonic cell type also has a concern in clinical practice because 
The ability to turn into multiple cells, unfortunately, also gives it the ability to turn into a tumor or a cancer cell. And obviously, we don't want to be using cells in our patients that are meant to help them that can actually end up harming them. So to sort of get around this idea of embryonic cells, there were a group of scientists that started using a induced pluripotent stem cell, meaning they actually took a cell out of the body and they modified it in a lab setting in order to make it more like its cousin, the embryonic cell. Now that does get around some of the concerns about how we ethically get the cell, but Unfortunately, this belongs to the field of tissue engineering, which is a fascinating field, but nonetheless does not remove that potential to develop into a tumor. And so when we actually talk about the cells that we use in orthopedic practice, we're actually referring to something called the mesenchymal stem cell, which is an adult stem cell or something that we consider to be multipotent. Now, people are debating whether or not multipotent is the best type of cell because it doesn't develop into as many kinds of tissue as the first two do. But we have these cells all over our body and we store them in different places in order to use them as needed for maintenance and repair. So the interesting thing is Dr. Friedenstein, all the way back in the 1970s, was the first person to look at this, and he was using rat bone marrow to do studies in a laboratory. And it wasn't later, until 1991, that Arnold Kaplan, who I actually had the pleasure to meet several weeks ago at the Orthobiologic Institute Conference in Chicago, he was the first person to discover the the MSC, or what we call the mesenchymal stem cell. And the reason it would be called mesenchyme is because that's one of the three layers of the germline, or basically the layers that we have when we're an embryo as we develop into a human being. And so mesenchyme literally just means the middle layer. Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because this is the layer that develops into bone, cartilage, connective tissue, blood vessels, and muscle. So this happens to be the structures that most of the time in orthopedics or musculoskeletal medicine we are trying to help repair. Now it's noted that the resident stem cells like this are actually found in all kinds of adult tissues. So we find them in the bone or the periosteum, the lining of the bone. Find them in the muscle or skeletal muscle itself. We find it in fat. We find them in the umbilical cord as well as the placenta, which is the organ that a mother's womb uses to nourish a child when she's in the womb. We find them in the blood and in the skin. We even find them in the pulp of the teeth as well as the synovial membrane or kind of this lining of the uh, the joint space capsule. So how do we actually get access to these if we have an injury? Well, the, the MSCs, or the mesenchymal stem cells, are formed around pericytes. So the pericyte is like an outside of a blood vessel. And if you think about it, this is actually a great place to have an adult stem cell so that if you were to have an injury, you could just break this off the end of the blood vessel, and then you could send it to the place in the body where you experience the inflammation. 
And so some people started to argue about what was a stem cell and what was not. And so the scientific community came together and they formed this governing body. And this governing body refers to itself as the ISCT, or the International Society for Cellular Therapy. And they were the first people to set down some rules or some groundwork of really what is a stem cell and what is not. So they specifically made a few rules. And one of the rules was that the cells would adhere or they would stick to this special kind of plastic bottle when you put a cell in culture. Well, what's culture? Well, culture is the idea that you put a cell in a, a vessel or something to hold it and you give it a, a nice kind of soup or a broth that gives it good nourishment and then it grows. So these cells turned into bone or fat or cartilage, and they, they had these markers on their edges. And so these markers are labeled CD. So the CD markers 105 and 73 and 90 had to be positive. So they had to have these markers on their surface. And then there were other markers that they had to not have. And specifically, those markers were CD34, CD14, CD11B, CD79A, CD19, and HLA-DR. And so you might be thinking, well, if I'm a patient, I don't, I don't need to know this. I don't need to know what CDs make a cell a cell or not. But it's important that if you're going to seek care, that you understand that your doctor needs to know that these are the things that make a stem cell. And why is that? It's because there's a ton of companies that are in the market that are now trying to sell products that they call stem cell products for doctors to use to treat their patients with. But the fundamental truth is a lot of these don't have any stem cells in them at all. And so understanding what the ISCT says is and is not a cell becomes critical to making sure that you go to a place where you are going to get the best treatment. So the next discussion becomes is if there are stem cells all over the body, or at least these adult stem cells that we can use in clinical practice, where are they easiest to get? And there's two big sources at this point, and one would be the bone marrow, which is probably the best studied of all the papers and the peer-reviewed literature and the evidence that we have out there, and the other one is fat. Now, these, uh, these two sources are debated heavily today as to which one is better. And just because we have less evidence for fat doesn't mean it's not a good choice. But I'll tell you why some of the limitations in our country keep us from using that as a ready source. So first, let's go back to bone marrow. So bone marrow-derived MSCs or mesenchymal stem cells, they turn into a few different things. So they turn into bone, they turn into cartilage, muscle, sometimes even nerve, tendon, ligament, and fat. And so we've already discussed that that covers most of the things that we're actually trying to treat in the context of orthopedics or a musculoskeletal type of injury. Now, if we're to use the bone marrow, most people are frightened about that. So they say, well, you're going to put an enormous needle into the back of my hip bone to be able to take these cells out. Well, what do we find when we do that? Well, the bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem cells also come with a mix of other things. So when we take cells out of a bone marrow, we still have to filter out some things we don't want. And specifically, there are red blood cells, platelets, granulocytes. And so in order for us to filter those cells out, we have to use a special machine. And that machine is called a centrifuge. 
Now, a centrifuge is just a scientific tool that spins very fast. And the reason we like to use a tool that spins quickly is because we know that we can separate things by weight. So the lighter things go to the top of the container, and the heaviest things go to the bottom, and then there's sort of this middle layer in between, and that's the layer that has those precious MSCs in them that we want to use. And we know that this mix of cells also has varying potentials of differentiation. So what does that mean? That means some stem cells are really, really early on. They can really change into all kinds of different things. And this is MSCs. This is not talking about the embryonic or the iPSC that we mentioned earlier. And other parts of those bone marrow-derived stem cells are already somewhat committed, which means they can change maybe just into bone or just into cartilage, but they're earlier on than otherwise a mature adult cell would be. And so we get a mix of those when we draw cells out of the bone marrow. And people have speculated about whether or not bone marrow is better than fat, depending on what you want to get the cell to turn into. And specifically, they've looked at whether or not bone marrow cells tend to turn into bone better than other ones. Now, the bone marrow aspirate concentrate is the name for what it is that we get when we harvest these cells out of the bone marrow, and then we spend them down in the centrifuge, and we use this layer that has a concentrated amount or a packed amount of these cells all into it. And the interesting thing is, if you look in studies, you know, people worry about a couple things. They worry about, one, infection and usually pain, and also the problem with cells turning into a tumor. Well, There's been studies in the UK with over 19,000 patients that had bone marrow aspiration done. And of those studies, less than 1% of people had complications from drawing their bone marrow. That's a pretty good number when you go back to a patient about the risks of the procedure. And even those patients who did have complications turned out to be patients that already had an underlying bleeding disorder or an underlying leukemia. So you might even argue that appropriately selected in a healthy person or a person who lacks a clotting disorder or leukemia, that that incidence is very, very low. As physicians, that gives us confidence that we can do a procedure like this for a patient with minimal side effect. Now, you compare that to something like fat, and people say, well, gosh, you know, most people will say I have more fat than I need, and if you're going to take some fat and it's also going to help you know, treat my injury or my joint, go right ahead. In fact, take a little bit extra if you need to, right? Well, if you look at the literature, the amount of side effects that you see in a fat aspiration or a liposuction type of procedure is closer to 6 to 7%. Now, that may not sound bad to the casual observer because they think, well, gosh, if 100 people come in, then 93 of them are going to be fine and only 7 of them are going to be hurt. But if you're one of those 7, it's not so good. And the simple thing is if you're seeing hundreds or even thousands of patients a year in a high-volume center that does a lot of these procedures, 7% complication rate across thousands of people turns out to be quite a lot of patients. So we've got to pay really good attention to that. So the other thing that people argue about is The complication rates may be low or they may be in certain percentages, but how many of these stem cells do we really get when we harvest from one site or the other? So mesenchymal stem cells only make up somewhere between 0.001 and 0.01% of the bone marrow entirely. And we know that they concentrate themselves or they pack themselves in the highest number in the back of the hip bone. So we have a formal term for this, that we have an anatomical term that 
It's called the posterior iliac crest. But generally, that means if a patient's going to come in for a bone marrow procedure, that's where we're going to take them from. And so it seems when you study fat that there's actually higher numbers of stem cells available in the fat. And so people will say, well, if I'm going to have a procedure, whether or not the complication rate is a little bit higher, I'd rather go for a procedure in which I can get the most stem cells that I need. And the question is, is there really sort of what we call a dose response curve, or does it really matter on the number of cells that you put in? So some people will naturally think, you know, well, if you need cells to grow into tissue, then if you can get more, then it's going to grow into more tissue and you're going to do better. Well, the truth is there is some kind of dose response curve that's important here, but the reason I would say there's some kind of dose response curve is we know if you actually study healthy bone that there is a normal number of what you call native MSCs or native stem cells in that tissue. And after those, those bones become diseased, we actually see those numbers go down. And so there are people who would advocate for the fact that if you can put a number of those cells back in to otherwise dead or diseased bone, that you're, you're replacing something that should be there in the first place. And there is outcomes data that actually show that patients who get not enough of those cells put in during a procedure actually have worse outcomes as well. But there seems to be a minimum threshold, although we really probably don't know if there is a perfect number or a maximum threshold yet. Doesn't mean we won't find that, but it seems like we don't actually know at this time. So the other argument then is, is whether or not you choose fat or bone marrow is what about putting these cells in culture? So why not just take the cells out, put them in a dish and grow them with this really healthy soup for a period of time and then we can have an enormous number even beyond what's, what's just sitting there available and to inject that back into the patient for the best treatment. Well, first of all, there is a lack of FDA approval for that process in the United States. Now, there are people doing it outside of the United States, and there's been a lot of attention on medical tourism or people who are traveling outside of the country to go get treatments in other places that they don't have access to currently. But there's also some risks. And so every time you're transferring cells from one place to another, there's a risk of infection. It takes more time. The costs go up. And, and one thing we actually know is that if you keep a cell in culture and you let it divide a certain number of times, you actually lose your, your quote-unquote, your stemness. And what, what does that really mean? Every time a cell divides in culture, we call that a passage. And once you get beyond, you know, four to seven, it depends kind of who you read, but once you get on a certain number of passages, then you find that those cells really don't have as much of the property to turn into other tissue as they used to. You know, so is there a perfect, you know, amount of passages and how many cells do you really want to use? Is there a maximum? Is there an average number we should use? Well, we're still trying to figure that out. So back to the idea of, of fat. So I, I mentioned earlier that fat actually has more native cells in it than bone marrow does. So why don't we do that? Well, the FDA has cleared us to produce cells through a process of what we call minimal manipulation. In that process of minimal manipulation, if you want to be compliant, that means that you can't add anything to the cells in there. You really have to take them out in a sterile same-day procedure. You can use a centrifuge to spin them down and kind of pack them into a small space, but then you have to put them back into the same person, and you have to not add anything different. So there is a part of the fat 
where the stem cells really live in a high, high density. And we call that part the SVF, and that stands for the stromal vascular fraction. Now, a lot of people will argue that the stromal vascular fraction is the best source of adult stem cells. And so in order to do these procedures, that's what we should be using. But to get to it, you have to add a chemical to the fat to either emulsify it or basically break it down in such a way that you can obtain this really high yield of cells. And some people have criticized the FDA for their approach. But the FDA exists to basically protect people from things that we don't have enough information about to otherwise be safe. And so currently in the United States, outside of a regulated clinical trial, and if you have a question, you can always go to clinicaltrials.gov, using SVF uh, fat uh, digestion is, is not an appropriate way to get a stem cell therapy. Let's talk about why we would use these in the first place. Well, look at articular cartilage. So what does that mean? So articular means a joint. Cartilage is kind of this cushioning around a joint. And this is the kind of tissue that wears away in the context of osteoarthritis. We look at problems with this tissue, and that includes that it usually has a limited capacity to heal by itself. And often that has to do with a good blood supply. And so when we look at problems like osteoarthritis, we have damaged joint cartilage. Now, cartilage gets damaged by kind of these signaling factors called cytokines and prostaglandins and matrix metalloproteases. But basically, trying to understand that process is looking at just this whole cascade of resorption or basically of munching away of this cartilage by these Pac-Man cells that we call activated macrophages. And so when that happens, the cartilage gets hard and it often has sort of abnormal and unhealthy blood vessel formation that we would call neovascularization. And so the notion that stem cells can change or alter this process has actually helped us evolve the idea of how these work in the first place. So earlier I mentioned a doctor by the name of Arnold Kaplan, and this was uh, back in 1991, the person who coined the term mesenchymal stem cell. So interestingly, Dr. Kaplan has gone on to advocate that we actually change the name. So the name that he is advocating using now is still MSC, but medicinal signaling cell. Why would he do that? So there's something, there's a concept called the paracrine effect that's critically important. And the paracrine effect is actually the idea that the cell can secrete all of these signaling factors. And there's multiple factors we look at. So there's PDGF, TGF-beta, BMP, VEGF, interleukin-1-RA. But the point is, is that these factors, they change the biochemical environment on the inside of the joint. And so we went from thinking that the crucial thing was the stem cell being put into a joint without cartilage and then turning into cartilage and now the joint is you know suddenly less painful and it's healthier again. But as the science evolved, what we've come to understand may in fact be more important is the notion that it's the powerful signaling mechanism or the signal to the rest of the body that says, hey, we're in a place where we need you to heal. And so the mechanisms that we see are the things that actually help people who get these procedures are, are one, anti-inflammatory, and two, there is some anabolic tissue repair and some changing in the way the immune system even perceives this particular joint. But it's also crucial to understand that we're improving blood flow to that area and we're stopping the cell death pathway. 
And so I think in a lot of patients, depending on how advanced their disease is, what we're really talking about with them is stopping that pathway of degradation. And that perhaps is what is responsible for the experience of having less pain or better function. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to our initial podcast on the Orthobiologics Podcast brought to you by the Center for Regenerative Orthopedics at Georgia Bone & Joint. Stay tuned for our next episode about what is PRP. And in the meantime, if you have questions, you can check us out on our website at georgiaboneandjoint.org and check out our blog and YouTube channel, Facebook, or LinkedIn. 